We are continuing in this series I'm calling A Place in His Story. It is a series on First and Second Samuel, and today I'm going to try to tackle a little bit more chunk of the story than we have been, because if we don't take larger chunks, if we don't speed things along, we will be in his story until he returns, and when the author walks onto the stage, the story's over, right? So uh, uh, I'm going to try to speed it up. Let me ask you, let's set it up this way. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 8, 9, and 10. We'll try to look at those. So if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 8, here's how I want to uh, set it up, get you thinking about it. When was the last time, can you remember? When was the last time? What was the context? What was it? When was the last time you really, really wanted something? Remember what it was? Do you remember the context? Has there ever been a time in your life where you thought, boy, if I had that, whoo, I would never ask for anything else. Have you ever been there? God, if you would just, oh Lord, if you would give me this, I'd never ask for anything. You ever been there? That's what I wanted and I never wanted nothing more. About a couple decades ago, there's an old country music song by Kenny Chesney called Never Wanted Nothing More. Never Wanted Nothing More. What is incredibly, deliciously ironic about that song what you got to love about country music is the irony that's baked in, the sly little joke behind this. The song is called Never Wanted Nothing More, and it has multiple verses. <laughs> and I think he did that intentionally, right? He's saying, so it's, I, I never, when I could drive, if I could take a $500, it was mine all mine, and I never wanted nothing more, you know, right? You got, we were thinking it. I just helped you with the tune, Yeah. <clears throat> Until what? Until a romantic relationship, until marriage, until salvation. The whole point is we've been there right now. I am not suggesting, <clears throat> we should probably take with a grain of salt. I'm not suggesting we take theological direction from the same man who wrote, and I quote, we had all we ever wanted in that keg in the closet. So there's pizza on the floor. Like it's not a good, overall, this is not where we want to take theological direction. Why do I bring it up? Because he touches on something that is absolutely universal. He touches on something that is absolutely universal to the human heart. It, there are some single people who look at marriage as if to say that. If I can have that, I never want nothing more. That's the thing that I'm ultimately relying on. There are some married people who think that, that good gift of children, that's, oh, if only that. There are people with children, if only you know, better children, right? Uh, uh, there are people who, oh, if I could get right, why are students, some students are so anxious. They're filled with anxiety. They're filled with dread. These are teenagers. Some of you know I'm talking to you. These are teenagers. They should be worried about going out and having uh, fun and doing their best and trying to the, the different sports and athletics and the, and the academics and all that stuff. But they're filled with anxiety because right now they're already worried about 10 years from now how they're going to get a job and how they're going to put food on the table. That's real. There's students facing that anxiety. So what are they thinking? Lord, if I can just get that good scholarship, if I can just get that good job, I'll never want nothing more. And then there are people who have that job. If I could just get that dream job. There are people who are in their dream job going, if I can just get my 20 years, my 25 years, if I can just get to that nest egg, why? Retirement, that, oh, that's it. That place on the lake, that place on the beach. If I can establish that comfort. Do you see what I'm saying? If I could reach that place, I'd never want nothing more. 
In our text today, Israel really, really wants something. And there's a danger anytime. That's a, that should be a red flag when you really, really want something. It's not necessarily bad, but we'll talk about what happens when you really, really want something. Israel in 1 Samuel 8, after all that God has di- done for them, all they wanted was to be delivered from the Philistines and never wanted nothing more. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's like, it's so relevant. You say, what does a 3,000 year old story have to do with us? 1 Samuel 8 through 10 is not only pivotal to this series in Samuel, it's pivotal to the entire Old Testament. This is the hinge upon which we go from a loose confederation of tribes to a monarchy, a kingdom. It's happening in our text today. And what it has to do with us is it's like reading a mirror. It's looking into a mirror. It's like reading our story when Israel really wanted something. So I'm going to ask these three questions of the text. For those of you who are note takers, it's a narrative. And so when you preach through narrative, you do it a little differently than when you preach through a, you know, a, a, a didactic epistle or a letter. So for note takers, I think the narrative can hang on these three questions. One, what is the problem with really, really wanting something? What does God do about it? And what should we do about it? Got it? What is the problem with really, really wanting something? What does God do about it? What should we do about it? I heard, these three, I heard a sermon by an Australian preacher named Simon Finley. These were his three questions that he posed. I thought they were insightful, and so I'm using his questions here. Simon Finley's his name, and that's, uh, uh, jump right in. What is the problem with really, really wanting something? Well, the answer is your heart will always look for a savior. We all have a desire to feel safe. We all have a desire to feel secure. Who or what can we truly trust? Your heart will always choose a savior, a king. And the danger, of course, is when you choose any king other than God. Simon Finley and many other Christians have put it this way. Have you ever heard this? What's the problem with really, really wanting something? Well, you might be in danger of turning a good thing into a God thing. You ever heard that? It's pretty good insight. You, 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 the, 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 many Christians have said this, but it, it, it's right. It's not that you take some evil, wicked thing. It's often, think about the things I mentioned earlier about a, a marriage and a job and a dream job and retirement. N- none of these things are evil or wicked or bad. Just the opposite. They're good things. Ah, and therein lies the danger. With really, really wanting something, allowing our heart to be captured, allowing our real affection to have what St. Augustine called disordered loves, the Bible says we're to love God supremely, love others as ourselves. Those get out of order and we begin to allow our heart to feel the pull and the attraction of other things. They're often good things, but they're counterfeit saviors. And we allow good things to become a God thing. So when you really, really want something, you might be in danger of turning a good thing into a God thing. Uh, no other way to tackle it but just to jump right in. I will leave it to your homework to read through chapters 8, 9, and 10 in their entirety. Some of you are reading through 1 Samuel as we're in this series. If you're doing that, you will be rewarded today because you have a good sense of the context and the lay of the land. But it's not too late to begin reading through 1 Samuel. Certainly 8 through 10. I'll leave that for your homework. But we'll look at a few of them. When Samuel became old, the story so far has been about Samuel, the prophet. When he became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Uh Uh-oh. This should alert you. We've seen this before with Eli when he made his sons Hophni and Phinehas. It didn't end well then. It doesn't end well now. Look, the name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons, you guessed it, 
did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So things are not good in Israel. And it's a shame, right? Because after the promise, if you were here last week, chapter seven, like the ark was returned and this incredible mercy of God, they experienced God's mercy. It looks like things are looking up, but you know what happens? Uh, Time goes by and things are going along pretty well. And when when you're out of crisis mode, you get your eyes kind of focused back on yourself, turned inward. And so they're, uh, they're looking around and they're going, well, uh, uh, you, know, you know what the other nations have that we don't have. You know why we always seem so scattered. You know who could truly unite us. You know what we need. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, behold, you are old. That seems uncalled for. And your sons do not walk in your ways. All right, now that, that's facts. Now, here it is. Here it is. You know what we need. You know, we've been looking around at the Philistines and the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Stalactites and the Stalagmites, all the parasites. They all got all the one thing. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. 3,000 years later, and peer pressure is still a battle. We want to be like everybody else. It's hard to be holy and set apart and dedicated unto the Lord. Give us a king. Appoint for us an earthly king. There it is. And later in the chapter, we'll get to this verse, but they get more specific. They say, quote, we want a king to be like all the other nations, but if we had one, he would judge us, but he would go out before us and fight our battles for us. See, king would keep us safe. If we had an earthly king, then we could be safe. How's that land? How's that land on Samuel? What literally happened like five verses ago, right? What literally happened was what? When they were totally without hope, God Almighty thundered and the Lord, their king, Yahweh, literally fought their battles. And they have the audacity to say, if we had a king, you know, we'd be safe and the king would fight our battles. Samuel's like, are you kidding me? You Literally, God, your king is God. You don't need a king, you've got one. God is your king, and now you need a king to fight your battles? So Samuel was upset. He probably took it a little personal. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, remember, when you really want something, you're in danger of letting a good thing become a God thing. Was the desire for a monarchy a good thing? Did you know Deuteronomy chapter 17 in the Torah, God actually lays out, here's what it's going to look like when you have a king. It was always his intention, but it was going to be done his way. So that's why I say it's a good thing, but they're looking to the king, this earthly king, this desire for an earthly king, the way they used to look at God. And listen to how God reacts. And the Lord said to Samuel, basically the Lord said to Samuel, welcome to my world, Samuel. He said, quote, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You ever heard heard the old cliche? Listen, it's not you, it's me. This is what God's telling Samuel. I know you're taking this personal. Don't. It's not you they're rejecting. It's not, we don't want you to be our judge and we don't want your sons. No, 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 no. It's me. 
They don't want me as their king. In fact, this is pretty on brand for them. This is, this is heartbreaking. It's a, it, they are basically saying that we need salvation. We need to know we're safe. And the only way we can know we're safe is if we have an earthly king. God said that is heartbreaking and it's the way it's always been. Look at verse eight. According to all the deeds they have done. In other words, this is in line with what they do. According to all the deeds they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, now you know how it feels. So that they are also doing to you. This is how it feels. <clears throat> Earlier, I began the message by sort of making fun of country music. So let me say something good about it. Here's what country music gets right. That feeling, Israel is now looking to this earthly king the way they look, used to look at Yahweh. That feeling of heartbreak, that feeling in country, that country music describes of of. Uh, I used to have this person love me, but now they love this new person. And when I see them with the new person, they look at the new person like they used to look at me. And I long to be the recipient of that kind of affection, but now they're looking at them and I want it to be me and it should be me and why can't it be me? Can you think of any country music songs that describe this feeling? Can you think of any that don't? <laughs> so now, right, that feeling. Now, if you think it irreligious to say that God, like, Someone heartbroken. If you think it's irreligious, I would point out to you, that is exactly the language the Old Testament uses over and over to describe Israel's relationship with Yahweh God. It's described as a covenant marriage, a covenant relationship, a love relationship, and Israel's cheating on me. Israel is allowing, Israel's allowing her heart to be captured by other things other than God. Over and over, doesn't it? The whole book of Hosea is written around this theme of redeeming love. Israel is continually being unfaithful, and they are looking after these good things with these starry-eyed romantic wonder the way they used to long for God, the way they used to long for Yahweh. Just a chapter ago, it's God who can save us. God, we have no hope. You're it. Now it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I really need is this. Heartbreaking. Even at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in the church at Ephesus, do you remember when the church of Ephesus is being called out, they don't say, you broke all God's laws, you weren't holy. What do they say to the church of Ephesus? You've left your first love. Can I ask you, have you left your first love? If you allow your heart to turn a good thing into a God thing, listen, it's not just idolatry. It's, it's, idolatry is not just breaking God's law. It's breaking his heart. Don't allow your heart to be so captured by these other things that aren't the Lord. They are false saviors, but they've captured Israel's heart. And now then, we'll come back to this because this, you may find this strange theologically why God would do this. Now then, obey their voice. Verse nine, only you shall solemnly warn him, show him the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In other words, these quote unquote saviors that we're so attracted to other than God, and we say, yeah, 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 God can be a little part of my life, but I'm really gonna find my fulfillment in this or this or this one or that one. Well, these counterfeit saviors, they look good, but the Lord says, tell them exactly how it's really gonna go down. I call these verses, uh, I would put these verses under the heading, Careful what you wish for. He says, Samuel, tell him exactly straight up. This is what you think you want a king to fight your battles. You're forgetting what having an earthly king's really like. So verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. 
He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. You didn't think about a conscription. You didn't think about a draft, did you? He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and you didn't think about taxes, right? Take a tenth of your grain, your vineyards, give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Isn't that something? What's the picture he's painting? Egypt. He's saying, what you desire will land you back spiritually no better off than when I had to rescue you out of the land of Egypt. But if that's what you want, verse 18, and this is a word of warning, in that day, you'll cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In other words, you will say, this was a big mistake, take the king away, but you've made your bed. I can't, I mean, no, this is Samuel saying, this is what's gonna happen. I can't change the word of the Lord. See, can you imagine? That thing that you're counting on to save you uh, according to this, it's saying, you think that this is a savior. And, and, and what God is saying is, that, that idol, that, that good thing that you've turned into a God thing, make no mistake, it will demand its pound of flesh. And when you think about it, everything that we've allowed our heart to be captured by other than God, that's exactly true. If it's money, you constantly have to feed that account. It's never enough. If it's the approval of someone, you constantly have to feed that because what if they change their mind tomorrow? If it's, if it's youth and beauty, you constantly have to feed the God of youth and beauty as that God pours out his wrath slowly year after year and wrinkle after wrinkle, right? right? You have to carry these idols. We talked about that from chapter five. And you, now you would think, hearing all this, they would say, oh, oh, oh we, didn't, we, we never looked at it like that, Samuel. Good thing we got a prophet like you around. Man, those are, those are really compelling points you're making. You have, through logical analysis and telling me what's right and wrong, you have laid out the logical consequences of idolatry over God. Man, we need to at least have a committee meeting. Like, let's, let's slow up a little. Let, let's think this through. You would think, right? They'd be like, I am now hesitant to chase after idols. You would think. The next verse says, Verse 19, but the people were like, yeah, 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 yeah. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be also like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Yahweh's like, I'm in the room. Like, you know, I hear this. (laughs) Unbelievable. They can't let it go. They can't listen to reason. Now, do any of you feel completely comfortable in looking down at these ancient Israelites in condemnation? Does anyone feel at all comfortable saying, how can this be? How can the people of God who know better allow their heart to chase after something other than God? Haven't they seen the goodness of God? Haven't they seen all they've done? Who in their right mind would ever choose sin over the Lord? Duh. Does anyone feel real comfortable doing that? Of course not. Because we know when we read this, we're reading our own story. We've done it. There is a well-worn preacher illustration. I've heard it in sermons. I've heard it in seminars. Even people outside of religious world, they use this illustration of uh, how to trap monkeys. 
You know this one. You heard this one? Uh, the idea is you, you find a little gourd or a bowl or a little melon, and um, uh, inside are the seeds of this particular melon that are partic- they're just delicacies to the monkey, and the monkey loves these particular seeds so much. And so the diameter of the hole is um, obviously in this uh, particular story, you have measured a monkey paw diameter, uh, uh, which seems to me if you got that close, you should have just trapped the monkey then because clearly you were close enough to measure the paw. At any rate, you, 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 you get the paw at such a diameter that the hand of the little, the little Paul can go in and grab those delicious seeds. That's what he longs more than anything. But of course, once he's grabbed the seeds, in the, it, it, the fist can't come back out the hole. And he's trapped by this gourd, which apparently you've weighted the gourd because the monkey cannot go any further. Um, uh, 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 right. Now, here, here, here's the thing. Um, everybody gets the point of that. Like, the, the Israelites are not listening to reason. Why? Is it greed? In this parable of this, this, this monkey, it, it seems like it's greed. Um, but uh, over and over, I think, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, a desire for security. I think the monkey knows he'd be, he'd be safe, right? If, if I had this, then I'd, I'd, I'd have what I want, and I'd have it for a long time. And, and, and that is just a lure that is too strong. And at any point, you're like, dude, just, just drop the... You know, just drop the seeds and you, and you could be free. But I would choose, now follow me, I would choose something I really want even though it would take away my freedom to become an addict, to have a desire so strong. You think this doesn't apply to us? In the New Testament, Jesus said that there was a, a man, do you remember this? Uh, this? This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. He says, I've got that. He goes, great, sounds like you're ahead of the game. Just one more thing. What? He, apparently Jesus, you see, could look inside his heart and not just at the external commandments. He said, you're a man of great wealth, right? Take all that you have, sell every bit of it, give it to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. He promises real treasure, treasure that won't wear out. And what does the Bible say he does? He drops everything, sells it, and goes with Jesus and lives a life of freedom? No. And, and by the way, that ends up with real treasure? People leave that part out. Jesus offered him treasure. He didn't say go and sell and have nothing. He says go sell it and you'll have real treasure. But no, what does he do? Trapped by his own desire. Now that rich young ruler, you can say that's greed. I don't think so. I think he looks at all that wealth and goes, I can trust this. I have comfort because of this. I have security. I have power. I have influence. And I think, look, I know exactly zero monkey trappers. None of them. I don't know a single one. And my hunch is that that is not at all how anyone has ever in the history has ever trapped a monkey. I don't think that's a real story. I don't think that's how they do it. I think collectively as a culture, we have agreed that that's how it happens. Because deep down, we all know those aren't the only primates to fall for that. We know because it's such a perfect parable of how we treat things, good things, that we've made a God thing. And some of you, I wonder, right now are trapped, and you are one open hand away from freedom this morning. But your heart says, give us a king. And God says, I'm that king. I'm telling you, I'm that king. Drop it. Come with me. You're not listening to reason. Uh, you, you know, when we latch onto something and trap my own desires, when we can't let it go, when we trust, people say an idol is anything you put before God. That's true, 
but it is not the most helpful definition because it doesn't help us get our heads and our hearts around it. Idolatry, an idol is not just anything you put above God. That's true. An idol is anyone or anything you trust to save you more than God. An idol is anyone or anything you trust to save you more than God. And the Israelites were saying, for us, that's a king. What is it for you? Now, uh, 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 I, I mentioned uh, common uh, uh, potential idols. They could be anything. Usually they're good things turned into God things. You know, in, in marriage, it's a good thing. But if you turn your spouse into that source of ultimate happiness, your, your child, of course it's a good thing. Uh, uh, but if we look to our children to be the source of ultimate approval and fulfillment, we'll crush that child. A dream job, nothing wrong with that. But what happens when you uh, uh, get too old and you have to retire? Or what happens when days are, are boring and it doesn't turn out to be a dream job? Or money or a new house or some travel experience or, or, or social media or video games or all these things. They promise so much. How do you know, by the way, one last word about this. How do you know when you've um, turned a good thing into a God thing? How do you know when you've crossed that line? And the answer, I think, is look at the fruit. What fruit is produced in your life? If you have turned a good thing into a God thing, sooner or later, you may notice that you become angry at God. You become distant from God, especially if, if he withholds this thing that you desire more than God. Um, uh, if you notice jealousy and resentment, that's a fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But if you notice bad fruit being born, check that. I wonder if it's a good thing that's become a God thing. When you become so obsessed with this desire that it's blocking out other things in your life. Well, the danger, of course, in really, really wanting something is that you might be turning a good thing into a God thing. What does God do about it? What should we do about it? What does God do about it? This may surprise you. What does God do about it? Answer, sometimes. God gives you exactly what you want. Incredibly. God gives the Israelites. Look at verse 21. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he can't believe it. He's like, okay. He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. I love that. There's Samuel. Are you hearing this, God? He's like, I'm the maker of heaven and earth. Yes, I but, I, but the thank you for repeating it. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. Y'all go back to your rooms and think about this. <laughs> He's mad. Isn't that incredible? God gives the people what they want. Now let me pause here and point that out. People, you are not machines. You have free choice. It's incredible. Now your free choice doesn't hamper the sovereignty of God. In fact, one of the, one of the, amazing things about chapter nine is you see while the people are choosing all this that God's hand is always at work providentially in guiding and, 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 and he never loses control of the universe and yet he allows these humans there's no denying he allows these humans this incredible free agency the one that, the one that gets me in the New Testament is, um, is the uh, story of the, the, the parable of the prodigal son that one gets me every time Jesus says a man had two sons in the end of the story, the loving father, we realize, represents God. So if he represents God, isn't it incredible that the story says a man had two sons and the younger of the two sons came to his father and said, Father, give me my share of inheritance now. In other words, I wish you were dead. I just love you for your money. Go ahead and give it to me now. It is amazing. Everybody talks about the grace of the prodigal son to welcome the son back. I think the grace starts right there. It is amazing grace that the father didn't... Uh, uh, <clears throat> punish the son, right? Yell at the son. Tell the son, have you lost your mind? Get back in the field and go to work, right? Well, who of us, right? Can you imagine? 
give me my share of the inheritance now. I'm going to go squander it. I don't really care about you. Oh, really? <laughs> You're getting nothing. Will being ripped up. Okay, this is what we would do. And yet the father amazingly grants him his choice. <laughs> A good friend of mine, T.S. Lewis, says uh, that uh, uh, you thought I'd have a new friend by now. <laughs> Friends are hard to make. Uh, that uh, in the end, there's only two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says forever, okay, thy will be done. Incredible. God gives them. Why? Well, why would he do this? Well, look how the story unfolds. We'll come back to that, we'll come back to that question. I think he does this to help us see that the, 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 the things we want that are not God, they're never going to satisfy. Okay, again, your homework is to read the whole thing, but let me read a chunk of it. Nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. Ah, oh, you love, this is masterful storytelling. So first Samuel is riding along. The people want a king. Y'all go home. And then out of nowhere, once upon a time, right? There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Okay, maybe Mr. Kish. Oh, I know. Maybe Mr. Kish is going to be the king. The son of Abiel. Okay, cool. No idea who that is. The son of Zeror, still not helping. Son of Becherath, oh, I know, nope. Son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Okay, okay, so maybe he's a rich Mr. Kish. Okay, maybe, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Ah, now this is starting to look kingly. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now... Start in varsity for the Benjamite bombers. He's uh, 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 tall and handsome. Ah, yeah. Great. So we're going to move the story along. Now we've, we've got this handsome person. It's obviously going to be that. What happens next? The writer of Samuel. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. What? This is great story. He's drawing us into the journey. And so out of nowhere we meet Mr. Kish. Then we meet his handsome son, Saul. And now we got some lost donkeys. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go look for the donkeys. They sent Saul because uh, from his vantage, he could see the donkeys. (laughs) I don't know. And he passed through the the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And you see what he's doing. You could obviously speed this whole thing up by saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. They looked around. They didn't see him. But he's taken us with him to this land. They're not there. Take him to this land. Not there. And he passed through, uh, then they passed through the, uh, the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, ah, sounds familiar. I can't place it. That's where Samuel lived. Saul said to his servant who was with him, come on, l- l- let's go back. Lest my father cease to care about the donkeys, come anxious about us. But he said to him, oh, hold up, behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who's held in honor. You know, he basically says, there's this seer, this prophet. Apparently, all that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, eh, nah. But if we go, I mean, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to give to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again. Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Saul's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about We came with riches. <laughs> Formerly in Israel, and then a little history, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, oh, all right, well said, come. 
Let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. I'll leave it to you to read the rest of that. Uh, Samuel uh, has been told privately by God, I'm sending you someone. You'll know when it's him. He points out, okay, this is the one. And Samuel basically welcomes him and says, I knew you were coming. We've got USDA prime uh, filet mignon that we've saved for you. So bring that special cut of meat. Saul's like, what is happening right now? He gets put at the head of the table, uh, feast in his honor, dines with Samuel, gives him the best uh, uh, space to sleep at that night, which in the ancient Near East in the hot land would have been on the roof. He goes to sleep on the roof the whole time wondering what is happening to me right now? And at the break of dawn, uh, verse uh, 26, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. This this is the future king of Israel. It's kind of this, you know, this, this puppet in this drama, it seems like. Verse 27, and as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, hold up, I need a private word. Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Chapter 10, verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, kissed him and said, here it is, the private coronation of the future king of Israel. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Uh, You got to love this so much. Samuel is still smarting. He is still mad that Israel wants a king. So through clenched teeth, he can't even bring himself to say the word king. Because for Samuel, Yahweh is king. So he, he literally is anointing him king. You, I mean, pouring, right? The oil, the kiss. Well, you know, heart's not in it. And he says, here, I'm anointing you. It's <laughs> great. Even prophets get bitter. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. This is what kings do. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And again, I'm skipping over some material. Samuel gives him these three signs. They all come exactly true. They're very specific. You're gonna meet a man. He's gonna have this many loaves of bread. You know, exactly happens. The last one is there's gonna be these prophets. You're gonna prophesy Prophets come on. His uncle comes out of nowhere and sees, we've had a lost donkey. We've had, you know, a a lost uncle. The uncle's like, hey, what'd that prophet tell you about? And he's like, "Um, he just, no, something's different. What did that prophet stop and talk to you about? He's like, he just told me where the donkeys were. Is that all? Mm Mm-hmm, right? So kind of little untruth to the uncle. And now, the public coronation. All that's been private. And now verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Skip down to verse 20 and they cast lots. Everyone knows it's going to be Saul. The reader knows it's going to be Saul, but the people need confirmation that this is the Lord's will that it's Saul. Hence the lots are going to be done in public and everyone's going to see that it is in fact Saul. Verse 20, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And sure enough, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. The coronation, the will of God unfolded in the lots. All that has come before, it's all come to this moment. The coronation, long live the... It's all? It's all? His great moment, where is he? So when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, like, God, did we misunderstand, right? Is there a man still to come? Ah, I know, perhaps he's already fighting a battle. Perhaps he's already with his tall and handsome appearance, making all of our foes bow before us. Where is he? The Lord said, here's your king. 
Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Saul, Saul, Samsonite. Saul's right there. There he is. And then they ran and took him from there. They have to take the king. And, you know, he's really tall, so he sort of unfolds. <laughs> Those roll-ons are tight. They ran, took him, and when he stood among his people, the, Samuel, the, the writer tells us, he was taller than all the people from the shoulders upward. It's making a point. I'll get to that. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel took the told the people the rights and duties of kingship, wrote them in a book, laid it before the Lord. Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul went also to his home at Gibeah, and with him were men of valor whose hearts God had touched. I think these are like bodyguards now that you're the king. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. And Saul, the new king, boldly approached him and confronted them and said, off with their heads? No, but he held his peace. (laughs) So Israel got what they really wanted. They didn't heed the voice of the Lord. And yet, in his mercy, he honored their choice and he gave them a king that you can see the hand of God was behind. So that leads to the final point. What what should we do about this? How do we apply this to our lives? You need to see that what you really, really want, if it's not God, it's ultimately never gonna satisfy your soul. And that's what I think the narrative is trying to show us. Remember, preaching through a narrative is different, right? This is a story, we, we have to respect the genre of each Bible passage we come to. This is very different than preaching through 1 John. 1 John is didactic. God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none at all. Any questions? We move on to the next point. If we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in the darkness, we don't. If we confess our sins, we're faithful and just. The application, confess your sins, right? Boom, 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 point, point, point. In narrative, even in, even in any kind of narrative you read today, narrative authors, they do not tell you what they want you to see, they show you what they want you to see. It's a big difference. First John tells you. A narrative shows you. So we have to look at this and say, what is he trying to show us? What is the author of this passage trying to show us? What does he show us? And you don't, you don't, explain, the, you don't explain the punchline after you tell the joke. That ruins it. So you lay it out there and you show it. What's he showing us? Simply this. You wanted a king? You got one. And on the outside, he's everything a king should be. How many times did he take pains to tell us he was taller than everybody and he was handsome? On the outside, that idol sure looks like it'll save. Be honest, doesn't money look like a good savior? If you had unlimited money, then you would be completely secure from anything that came your way. Isn't that an easy-to-believe lie? Isn't it? If you just had that uh, marriage you long for, if you just had that college scholarship, if you just had, do you see what I'm getting at? If you just had that substance, if you just had that comfort, if you, right? Isn't that, doesn't Saul look so good on the outside? Hmm? But what does the text show us? I think it starts all the way in the hunt for the lost donkeys. It keeps showing us stuff about Saul that says, eh, there's a flaw in the Saul. Something's not quite right. And sure enough, we're about to see. It's a disaster. But it starts from the very beginning. And that's what the text is showing you. Remember the hunt for the donkeys? They're hunting for the donkeys. And they, and, and they get to a point where it's, they've come to the end. They've gone through all these places. And the narrator takes us through. We would expect a king, right? The servant is supposed to say, noble leader, we must turn back. We could die, but let's turn back because uh, even though we will fail our father's mission, we turn back. And the noble king is supposed to say, nonsense. We shall carry on and go forward, right? In this case, it's Saul. Here's your future king who's like, let's call it quits. What about the lost donkeys? What about your father? 
An attempt was made, bro. <laughs> Let's head back. He's going to be more worried about us than the donkeys. It is the servant who shows faithfulness to the father's mission, who says, well, what about this? There's a prophet. And even then, Saul is supposed to say, right? What is he, well, yeah, but we ain't got anything to pay him with. It is the plucky servant who has all the resourcefulness. You know, the kind of thing, say, a king might need, who has the wisdom to say, what about this, you know, quarter shekel of silver, right? You know, you'd think a king would be about this. No. And then later on, you got, uh, you got Saul telling Samuel, no, I'm not your right guy. You got him lying to his uncle. What was all that about? Nothing, just donkeys. And most of all, here's your bold leader. He's going to lead you out into the enemy. He's not afraid of anything. Where is he? Hiding in the luggage, right? The text is showing us uh, something's not right. Well, I think that's what the text is showing us. He's showing us plainly that on the outside, idols have everything you ever wanted. But underneath, you realize they cannot save. Saul here comes across like the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz. On the outside, bold and fearless and ferocious. On the inside, you realize no courage, character flaws. And that's the point. Some things look like they can promise so much, but they fail to deliver. And that's what happens when we turn good things into God things. The musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. And Brandon's going to come. And I, I, uh, I want you to ponder that, what, what we should do. I want this to apply to your life. Um, have you left your first love? Is there somebody in here who's trapped? You know, surrender is the way to freedom. Uh, to, to let go of that uh, sinful desire, that idol... We do not talk honestly enough, probably, about how much we deeply love sin. And I don't know that you can, you can, you can't condemn someone, you can't browbeat them, you can't make somebody feel guilty and say, you shouldn't love sin that much. I really think, for somebody trapped, I really think you need to do, the ultimate application of this sermon would not be trying to convince you that your idol is so bad. It would be a whole different approach. I would want to go up to somebody trapped and I would want to say, but what about this over here? The old Puritans called it the expulsive power of a newfound affection. What if your vision of God this morning was such that you realized you were so smitten by his love this morning, you realized what he did for you, that that sin lost its power, not because you sort of, you know, through force peeled your life off your sin, but you just didn't want it so much anymore now that you've seen the glory and the goodness and the splendor and the beauty and the grandeur of our God, Yahweh, who reigns and loves and lives and serves and is not a counterfeit God. He won't uh, fail you. He won't need to be you know, fed and taxed and enslaved and all that like, 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 like Samuel told him that would happen in an earthly king. He loves you. And that, if anything, that... I told you last week, every page of 1 Samuel whispers the name of Jesus. You look at this king and you go, that turned out to be a terrible king. Maybe that's in there to point us to a true and better king. And please note the contrast between these kings. The king that Israel wanted was tall and handsome of great appearance. Looked like everything a king should be. The king God sent, according to Isaiah 53, says he had no form or majesty that we would look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was one as one whom men hid their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. 
But surely he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, afflicted by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. Isn't that something? The false gods we chase after look so good on the outside, but inside they cannot save. Meanwhile, God sends Jesus, who is not what we thought a king should look like. When he's hanging on the cross, he's so mangled, men would turn their faces away. And yet he has the goods. He can deliver. He can save. Apparently, when uh, Jesus, who lived this spotless life, he never left his first love. He was faithful. Go back to that, that, that country music imagery of the way you looked at him, used to look at me. We've done that. We've, we've cheated on God. We've, we've, we've chased after these idols. Jesus never did that. He never did that. He was always faithful to God. And on the cross, God treated Jesus as the unfaithful one. Why? God punished Jesus on the cross as if his heart had chased after all these other lovers. Why? Don't you see? For you, in your place, as a substitute for your salvation. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God was crucified as a faithless lover so that you could be forever God's. Oh, what love. Doesn't this make you want to say, give us a king, but not Saul. Give us a king, not money. Give us a king, not power. Give us a king, not wealth, not position, not, 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 not prestige, not approval, not youth, not beauty. Give me Jesus. See? Let his love Draw your heart. Come back to your first love. And long live the king. Make sure our only king is King Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, grant those of us who claim to be Christians, oh, grant us a heart today, a renewed heart to choose the only king who can truly save us. And forgive us when we chase after counterfeit gods and false saviors who can never save. And God, if anybody's here and they, they need freedom today, let today be the day they surrender. They drop control of those things they long for that they're obsessing over and find freedom in you. If there's anybody here who's not yet a believer, that today would be the day they bow to your kingship. Thank you for what you show us in 1 Samuel and continue to reveal more of yourself to your people. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.